0: In John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. There's no better time to reflect on those words than on this Memorial Day weekend when we remember and honor those men and women who have given their lives in service to this country to defend our freedom, our homes, and our families from the dark forces in this world that seek to kill and destroy everything that we hold dear. It is the highest calling of Christ and the greatest sacrifice that can be made to lay down your life for one another. And so we are eternally grateful for everyone who has made that sacrifice so that we can continue to gather freely as we have today to worship and fellowship and to enjoy life and freedom as americans yes but even more so as brothers and sisters in christ and we should as christians we should identify with the sacrifice of laying down our lives for others for that is the calling of every believer and follower of jesus christ the great german theologian and pastor dietrich bonhoeffer who tirelessly fought against the nazi regime in world war II. Was ultimately martyred for his faith in Christ and his stand against the Third Reich. Once said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the calling of every Christian to lay down our lives for each other. And of course, the ultimate example of that ultimate sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Jesus talked quite a bit about dying, not only about his own death, but about ours as well. He talked about dying to ourselves. He said a lot about giving up our lives and about hating our lives, about losing our lives. Why would he say those things? So that we might live. If you think about it, that's really a strange thing to say to someone, particularly someone who has no relationship with him, because the whole concept of self sacrifice to the point that we give up all that we have in order to gain every good thing that we could ever hope for it is completely counterintuitive for most people it, it just doesn't make any sense on the surface again especially to those who don't know him in fact there's a lot that Jesus said and did that makes very little sense to those outside of the church He just did and said what seemed to be some very bizarre things. And it's strange to us because if if you look at uh, other successful world leaders throughout history, for instance, what you would often find are men and women who achieved great accomplishments based on the expectations that others had for them once people realized who they were and what they were capable of. So, uh, Gandhi, for instance, became known for his leadership through peaceful protests and passive resistance. He became known as a man of peace and through his peaceful actions, among other things, India was granted independence from British rule. Gandhi met and even exceeded the expectations that other people had for him. Alexander the Great was known as a man of war. And at a young age, he conquered the known world. And as a result, that Hellenistic civilization that he carried with him was spread around that world for centuries to come. Alexander met and he exceeded the expectations that others had for him as a great man of war. Mother Teresa, uh, she became known for her service and advocacy to the poor. And because of her relentless work through the middle of the 20th century, there are now 700 missions operating in over 130 countries, including orphanages and hospices for people with terminal illnesses. These are people that were previously abandoned, overlooked, and uncared for in their communities. Mother Teresa was expected to do great things for the poor once people knew who she was and what she was capable of, and she met and even exceeded those expectations. How many brave men and women have gone to war for this country and given their lives to protect ours But if you think about it that's what we've come to expect at least in this country our soldiers don't back down from a fight they don't run from trouble and they don't forfeit our freedom No, our soldiers have faithfully met and even exceeded our expectations to defend this country even when it means giving up their own lives in the process And, of course, we honor them today for their sacrifices. In truth, it is wonderful to see people meet and even exceed expectations. In truth, there are many great leaders throughout history who met and exceeded what society expected from them once people understood who they were and what they were capable of. That is wonderful. But, listen, it is also one of the great contrasts between other popular world leaders and Jesus Christ. Because aside from the Father, Jesus never met anyone's expectations. Even after he told people and showed people who he was. In fact, he not only defied people's expectations consistently, but he completely shattered their expectations. The things that Jesus said and did were typically unexpected from both the religious and non-religious communities. He was totally unpredictable and so even though he was doing the most amazing things right there amidst them, healing people, revealing great mysteries, forgiving people their sins, controlling the weather, raising people from the dead, even though he was changing the world right in front of them, so many people, rather than being amazed and humbled and in awe of him, So many were simply frustrated because time after time he failed to satisfy their expectations. And to be honest, I'm not sure that a whole lot has changed in that regard. There are people today, just as there always have been, who walk away from the faith, who leave the church, who become disillusioned with the gospel they once held as truth. And although you may hear all sorts of explanations for that, when you get right down to it, what you will often find is that It's a matter of their expectations not being met. Not that people will typically frame it that way, but if you probe deep enough, that is precisely what you will very often find because we have our own ideas about how church should be and about how Christians should be and about how this walk with Christ should be. And yet, listen, Jesus doesn't play by our rules, nor did he ever promise to. And yet we want him to, don't we? we? We want him to give us what we want, when we want it, how we want it. I know I sure do sometimes. We expect our lives to turn out a certain way as long as we follow a prescribed set of rules, but Jesus doesn't play by our rules. And so when life doesn't turn out how we imagined it would, we can become unreceptive to him and his message, even, even though he continues to do the most amazing things in this world and in people's lives every single day. He turns tragedies into triumphs every day. Heartache into wisdom. Great loss into great strength. And yet so much of the wonderful work that he fashions in our lives doesn't come how we expect it to. There are a lot of young people who say, I want to be a soldier one day and fight for my country. But not so many of them say, I want to be a soldier one day and die in a war. Yet many have done just that, haven't they? As life doesn't always meet our expectations because God's plan isn't always the same as ours. He doesn't play by our rules, and he never has, and we'll see that in our story today. Jesus defies people's expectations, and yet it is Listen, it is always with great purpose and for our ultimate good, even when it makes no sense to us when we're in the middle of it. And the reason this should matter to us is because of the effect that his uncommon, unexpected life had on those who followed him, particularly after his resurrection and then their baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. His disciples' lives changed drastically. Their lives began to look a lot like his life. What they did and what they said was often unexpected and unpredictable by those in society who were paying attention. These were common men and women living very uncommon lives. Counter to the culture, against the grain of pop culture. They lived exceptional lives with great purpose that changed the world around them, and yet their lives didn't make a lot of sense to those who were not believers. Okay, our, our level of commitment to Christ and to his church, the way that we give and serve and sacrifice for the sake of his name and the gospel and for one another, the way that we actually carry on with our lives day by day, should be uncommon and it should be unexpected to many who are watching. So ask yourself, when is the last time I said or did something that shocked someone who saw it or heard about it because of how Christ-like it was? This is the example that Jesus lived for us and it is how his early disciples lived And it is how we are to live today. So let's turn to our story as we continue working our way through the gospel according to John. And we'll see how Jesus lived an unexpected life. And as usual, we'll pick up right where we left off at John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the news of that miracle was now spreading like wildfire. So many have come now to see this Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, the the light of the world, the bread of life, the good shepherd. Of course, he claimed he was the resurrection and the life. And so among the people now who know who he is and they've seen what he can do, there are now great expectations already forming for Jesus and specifically for what they hope that he will do for them and how he will do it. And yet right off the bat, he defies their expectations. Let's read verses 12 through 15 to start. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, "Fear not, daughter of Zion; behold, your king is coming." sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, at first glance, this all sounds pretty great. It's a celebration atmosphere. People are hailing the coming of Jesus into the city, and yet even this seemingly straightforward, triumphant entry into Jerusalem by Jesus was fraught with unmet expectations, even confusion by those who were closest to him. Listen to how his disciples uh, reacted to his grand entrance, verses 16 through 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So these are the same people who have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard what he'd done, this, that he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus is literally surrounded by crowds of people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is an Aramaic word. It means save us or rescue us. In the Hebrew, it means oh, save, or, or particularly it means save now. And along with the rest of that proclamation about him, they were quoting from Psalm 118, which is a part of the Hillel, the Hebrew Hillel. That's Psalms 113 through 118. That's the Hillel. And every Jewish pilgrim was familiar with that because they would sing it every morning at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're quoting it here as Jesus enters the city because at the time, the Jews had expectations that an earthly king was coming to save them from Roman occupation, They believed that Jesus was going to be the one to show up as the Messiah now and take care of their Roman oppressors in a very violent and decisive way, I might add. But as we walk through this story, it becomes evident that the Jews were full of errant expectations for Jesus. Because as the events from the triumphal entry on unfold, and really even before that, we find that Jesus did not meet their expectations. In fact, he made a royal mess Of their expectations and we talked about this at Easter time they expected Jesus to do something entirely different than what he actually did they expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse what they got instead was a man in peasants clothing accompanied by common people riding a young donkey of peace fulfilling the prophecy from 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9 9 They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple with a whip for their sin, which we see in Matthew 21, just after Jesus enters the city. They expected religious pretension and arrogance. What they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him and beating him and cursing him and ultimately killing him. They expected to prosper physically and materially under his leadership. What they got instead was a a suffering servant who sacrificed his own life. They expected revenge on the Romans for their oppressive occupation and years of offenses against the Jews. And what they got instead was a ransom paid in blood for their own offenses against God. You see, Jesus was everything that they needed And he had a plan for them. It was a good plan, but they missed it because they were focused on their own plans, their own desires, their own expectations, their own vision for the future. You see, it's good for us to have goals. Yes, it's good to have dreams. And certainly he gives us desires and longings. And then he equips us with the talent and understanding and tools to pursue those goals with vigor. But ultimately, if the vision of our future that we're chasing is not his vision for our future, listen, we will find ourselves living in an almost constant state of frustration and discontentedness as believers. Why? Because we're chasing a life that he never intended for us to live. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's an interesting answer, isn't it, to, hey, can we meet with Jesus, right? In verse 20, the word Greeks in the original language is the word Hellene. It refers to any Greek speaking non-Jew. So these weren't necessarily Greek people, but they were Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles who came to Jerusalem for the Passover and they simply wanted an audience with Jesus. Now we know that he was very clear back in chapter 10 verses 14 through 16 about Gentiles being included in his redemptive plan and his vision for the future. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And Jesus is talking about the Gentiles there, and he says that he must bring them also, and they will listen to his voice. And yet here in our story, when they come to his disciples and request a meeting with Jesus so they can listen to his voice and maybe he could bring them also, we'd expect him to say... Well, of course I'll meet with them, right? He's already made it clear that Gentiles are a part of his plan. They're going to be grafted into his flock. So when they come seeking him, based on everything that he's set up to this point, we'd expect him to receive them right away. And yet, once again, Jesus does not do what's expected of him. Instead, he focuses On the gravity and significance, and really the greater implications of what was happening in that moment, based on that very request. Okay, up until now, every reference to Jesus' time, to his hour in John's gospel, it was a reference to some point in the future. This is the first time that Jesus says, The hour has come. In other words, My passion is now imminent, which is signified by the Gentiles seeking him out. This is the significance, the great profound moment that signals a shift in Jesus's ministry. Now, of course, these Gentiles didn't know that. All that they knew is that he was not complying with their request to see him. And all the disciples knew was that he seemed to be avoiding the request with a really strange answer. But Jesus knew something else, something that they didn't know in that moment, that this was the hour of his great sacrificial work on the cross. It was now close at hand. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, he knew that he had to die first. To fulfill the Father's great plan to bring all of the sheep, Jews and Gentiles alike, into the same sheepfold. So which response to their request promises a better outcome for these Gentiles? That Jesus meet with them now or die for them later? Right? This is exactly what the high priest Caiaphas promised back in chapter 11 Verses 51 and 52, he says he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, that's Israel, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, that's the Gentiles. So knowing that now, having the benefit of that understanding, which is the better outcome for these Gentiles? That Jesus meet with them now or die for them later? Of course it's better for them that his plan is carried out rather than their plan. But in that moment, it seemed as if Jesus was simply ignoring their request. Now, how many times have we asked God for something only to be met with silence or maybe even a flat-out no to what we've asked with no further explanation? Right? It is easy in those moments to feel like we've been left out of God's plan that we've been left behind that we don't matter as much to him as the next person but listen to me nothing nothing could be further from the truth Jesus was silent on their request because he was preparing to provide something infinitely better for them than their immediate desire (laughs) are you getting this Jesus seemingly ignores their request because he's getting ready to do something for them that is not only completely and utterly unexpected, but something infinitely and profoundly better than anything they could ever ask or think. They had no idea what his plan for them was, but it was a good plan. It was an unbelievably good plan. And it was something that none of them could have ever expected. Jesus was about to die for them so they could be with him, not for a meeting, but forever. I'm telling you guys, if we had half of a glimpse of what God has planned for us, we'd stop worrying about most of the things that we worry about. But we get so invested in our own plans That when he doesn't respond immediately to our requests, we begin to fall to pieces and we wonder where we went wrong while all the while he's out there planning something infinitely better for us. Usually it's something that we could never predict or could never expect. Sometimes we just need to sit tight and continue being faithful to him when our prayers aren't immediately answered. Don't, Don't walk away from the faith. Don't walk away from the church. Don't question the validity of the gospel just because your vision for the future isn't being realized how you thought it would. Because our vision for the future cannot even begin to compare with his vision for our future. And just because we can't see it or predict it doesn't mean it isn't happening. The truth is we don't always know what God is up to. We just don't always know what he's doing and yet he still requires us in the not knowing days of our lives to place all of our trust and allegiance in him. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What a weird thing to say. This is actually a Semitic idiom. It's a a form of a Hebrew wisdom saying where love and hate are contrasted to make a point. As sharply as possible, Jesus is teaching them to die to themselves, to their own plans, to their own selfish desires, even to their own expectations, and instead pledge all of their allegiance and affection to one who they will never completely be able to comprehend or predict. And so he then points them back to himself as their example. Let's read verses 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered and We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Like, seriously, guys? So Jesus said to them, the Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead when they were there. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. They, they just cannot see past their own expectations for their future. Even when God the Father himself speaks directly to to them, they miss it. Even when Jesus explains to them that he's going to die and rise again to draw all people to himself, they miss it. Even when he raises a man from the dead right in front of them, they miss it. They don't understand because they cannot see past their own expectations for the Messiah, which look nothing like God's actual plan for them. And sadly, Many of them simply could not accept the true Messiah in the end because they were too fixated on the Messiah of their own expectations. Let's uh, keep reading the rest of verse 36 through verse uh, 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As hard as it can be to believe, we can actually become so enamored with our own vision of the future, our own lives as we have constructed them, as we believe that we have anyway, our own expectations of how our lives should look. We can become so enamored with that that we reject his plan for our lives. John said, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why was it a big deal to be put out of the synagogue? It says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They didn't want to be shamed. They were more concerned about what men thought than what God thought. Listen to this quote from J.R. Illingworth. He said The thought of a present God, one who knows us, loves us, desires us, cooperates with our efforts, is essential to our practice of the Christian virtues. But we are living at the present time in an intellectual atmosphere from which that thought has been, to a large extent, eliminated. The consequence is that a great number if not a majority of professing Christians have adopted a morality which is no longer distinctively Christian. Their speculative belief, it is true, may have remained unchanged, but the disintegrating influence of this subtle, impalpable, pervasive, corrosive atmosphere has loosened without their knowledge the bond of their conduct to their creed. In other words, they don't do what they say they believe in. And they live and move and act in practical affairs without feeling from day to day the need of the divine cooperation, the force of the divine attraction, the constraint of the divine love. But dangers which elude us in their subtlety do not cease to be real dangers. Illingworth wrote this in 1881. How true is that today? God help us if we ever become so enraptured by what this world has to offer that we actually turn away from his plan for our lives. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So this is Jesus' final public challenge to the crowds. He addresses both those who believe in him and those who reject him. And he concludes his public ministry by underscoring the fact that everything that he says and does comes from the Father. In other words, he's saying there's a plan That plan has been put into place by a sovereign God long before any of us were here. The sooner we figure this out today, the sooner that we accept that God is sovereign and we are not, the sooner we understand that your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, Psalm 139, 16. Think about that a minute. Let that sink in for just a moment. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide there's a plan that he made and chose us for second timothy 1 9 the apostle paul says that god saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in christ jesus listen to this part which he gave us in christ jesus before the ages began And this is just an infinitesimal sampling of the pages of verses, pages of verses that say the same thing. Do you understand what that actually means for your life? It means God has a plan, that he's created a plan for every single moment of your existence. And he created that plan long before he created you. if we could even begin to grasp the implications of that truth, none of us would be the same. We wouldn't. We fear and fret and stress and worry and try to predict every possible outcome in our lives because we like to know what's around the corner. We like predictability, but look, the giant monkey wrench in that way of living is the fact that we don't serve a predictable God. And the sooner we get this, that he has already written the story, and it is our job to be faithful to his story, his plan, the one that he wrote. It's not the other way around. The sooner we get that, the, the sooner our purpose becomes clearer, even when our circumstances do not. Even when our lives don't turn out the way that we expected them to. Because it is then, once we recognize and accept that we are, each one of us, playing a part in a story that he wrote. When we accept and embrace his plan, it is then that our will comes into alignment with his will. And it's so important because there are people today, in fact there are Christians today, who are very frustrated with the state that their lives are in. Because what they expected would happen didn't happen. Their lives look very different from what they expected them to. And look, if that describes you today, you're not alone. Okay, because I know that there is at least one other person in this room whose life looks very different today than he thought it would. I never expected to work at a career, toward career for almost two decades and then give it all up to ultimately pursue a calling that I never expected to be there. I tell you, I didn't expect to have far less money and assets and material wealth at 45 years old than I did at 35 years old. I thought I would be building wealth, not giving it away. I never thought I would pastor a church, let alone start one. That was never on my list of expectations for life. And that journey, quite frankly, has required a lot of sacrifices, a lot of letting go of expectations. At times the circumstances that we found ourselves in didn't seem to make a lot of sense and yet we were learning all along the way to trust in his plan even when it didn't line up with our plan. Which meant ultimately that we were able to experience great purpose for our lives even when we weren't sure what tomorrow had in store for us. In this vocation, I talk to a lot of people who are struggling in life, people who are frustrated and confused and weary, even sometimes beat down with life. Sometimes they feel they've lost their way, don't know why they are where they are or where they're going. And if you talk to someone in that state and you ask the right questions about why they feel the way they do, why there's so much personal turmoil, and then really listen to their response, you will often find, not always, but you will very often find that it is a matter of expectations in their lives that are not being met. The truth is, unmet expectations are at the root of so much discontentedness in our society today. It almost seems to me like an emotional epidemic when you counsel people with a, a lot of hurt in their lives. But for so many of us, there is a simple, not necessarily easy, but a simple key to completely turning our lives around, to revolutionizing how we see our lives. And it can be as simple as shifting our thinking from demanding what I expect from God to instead asking, God, what do you expect from me? You see, that one simple shift in thinking can it can radically change your entire outlook on life and it will compel you to live differently it will compel you to live radically for christ because you are no longer bound by unmet expectations so when you begin to live that way people will uh, listen people will sometimes question your motives in fact they may even question your sanity which is exactly what they did with Jesus and his disciples. And it is perfectly okay because living for Christ means living an unexpected life. So ask yourself, when was the last time I said or did something that shocked someone who saw it or heard about it because of how Christ-like it was? If you can't remember the last time that happened, maybe it's time to let some of those expectations, some of those desires that we demand be met, maybe it's time to let them die. Maybe it's time to give them a a nice funeral and let them experience a final death. Maybe it's time to ask him, Father, what do you expect from me? Let's pray.